From CPR News in Crested Butte, this is Colorado Matters. Today's show is about so many fascinating things, I'm not sure where to start. I guess we can begin with one of the most repulsive books ever written back in the 18th century. But there's so much more. We'll discuss class, censorship, and what it means for history's sake that presidents and pop stars don't really put pen to paper in the digital age. We won't have the handwritten speeches of Barack Obama, the handwritten drafts of Taylor Swift's songs 100 years from now, because it's now all on the computer, Word documents, emails, text messages. And so the remnants of this massive age of handwriting will become more and more rare and more and more valuable, like a lost Stradivarius violin. An interview with Denver author and investigative reporter Joel Warner. I donated my beat-up car to Colorado Public Radio. Because I was super attached to it. When it was time to get rid of it, it was just nice to know that it went to CPR. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Our family was excited, one, to get the car off the street, and two, that it went to a good place. It kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you, like paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. If you have a car to donate, start the process at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Crested Butte, and I want you to get your ears ready for a word. The word is bibliomania. Beyond a love of books, this is defined as an extreme preoccupation with collecting them, something akin to literary hoarding. And if you have enough money, it might be rare manuscripts you chase. Well, bibliomania and the obsession with one text in particular is at the heart of a new book by Denver journalist Joel Warner. It's called The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, a notorious scoundrel, a mythical manuscript, and the biggest scandal in literary history. Fitting, perhaps, that Joel joins me on stage in Crested Butte in front of book lovers, maybe even a bibliomaniac or two, at the Mountain Words Literary Festival. And let's welcome Joel Warner. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. The manuscript in question is the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom. So I want to offer up a content warning. There will be some discussion of sexual violence and of torture, not just because 120 Days deals with those subjects, but because it's quite clear that Saad himself was a predator. Um, Joel, I gather it's those dark dimensions that contribute to people's obsession with this manuscript. Perhaps we could start with where and when it was written. I have to take you back then to this moment in 1785 where the Marquis de Sade, who was this infamous French aristocrat, had been locked away in the Bastille which was uh, the most fearsome prison in France and perhaps all of Europe for doing all sorts of horrible things, uh, sacrilegious acts, abusing prostitutes, getting on the bad side of his mother-in-law, who happened to be close friends of the king. So she had Saad locked away in the Bastille, possibly for the rest of his life. And there he became obsessed with putting down the crimes that he had been committing in real life onto paper. So he began this obsessive kind of literary career 
and he ended up producing some of uh, the most kind of scandalous and notorious works of fiction ever had ever been written. The worst thing that he ever wrote, he started one night in 1785, locked in his cell, and he begins it basically saying, this more or less will be the worst thing that has been written since the world began. And he titled it 120 Days of Sodom. And it tells a really just horrific tale, as you said, of, of sexual violence and torture. And he basically created this 40-foot-long scroll and just four inches wide. So literally, it looks kind of like a roll of toilet paper. And he covered this thing with 152,000 words. He wrote over 37 nights. And just everything about this manuscript, from its unique shape and size, the fact that it was written in the heart of the most notorious prison at the time. And in like microscopic lettering. Oh yes, it's, uh, the writing is so small that it is, it is hard to read without a magnifying glass. Wow. And so just everything about this manuscript and the fact that it was then kind of lost and feared destroyed for about a century kind of became legendary. The man who first translated 120 Days of Sodom into English wrote of the experience, sometimes it happens that reading becomes something else, something excessive and grave. It sometimes happens that a book reads its readers through. Have you read the book? I have not read 120 Days of Sodom. Have you? I'm glad you haven't. I had to read the majority of it. And you're relieved for me. Yes, it is not a fun read in any way, shape, or form. It is, uh, you know, I had to prepare myself for the process uh, because before I read it, I spoke with the most recent translator who wrote a translation for um, Penguin Classics. So this was like bringing to the Pantheon and this lovely British professor and I got him on the phone to talk about the process. And he literally said to me, this is the worst thing that has ever been written. And he wrote in his blog at the time, it was kind of along the same lines of the quote that you just shared, like, at times, I don't think I'm working on the text. I think the text is working on me. Mm-hmm. And it's because of both the content and the form of this writing. It is just, it is about these four horrible aristocrats kidnapping all these young people, both young men and young women, and subjecting them to the worst torture imaginable. I think some people associate Saad with BDSM and, you know, or kind of sexuality. You know, some people have said this is, oh, it's the original version of Fifty Shades of Grey. But it's not like, you know, it's much more like the original version of a film like Saw, which is, it is like pure, like torture porn. They do horrible, horrible things to these innocent people. And it's written in a way that's just in your face. It's stark. It's not compelling. It's just, just there. You started by saying that in the Bastille, in this prison, where I think he finds himself during the revolution on what we know as Bastille Day, you said that he began to put ink to paper his confessions. Are you telling me that 120 Days of Sodom is a confessional space? This, this is an unknown question. This was someone who definitely did horrible, horrible things. This was someone... A predator. Yes. Oh, a pure predator. And an, an entitled noblistic predator. Yes. This was someone who was high up in the aristocracy before the revolution. So this was someone who could get away with it. <laughs> So, for example, there was one winter where 
sawed the person, hired a bunch of young servants, and locked them in his chateau in Provence. And we don't know exactly what happened. Weren't bones found on the property? Yes, and Saad said, oh no, those were just theater props. But yes, bones were found on the property. Your book is about so much more than that depravity. Uh, we will move on to themes of literary preservation, censorship, and financial crime. The genesis of this book, your book, involves a former Colorado public radio reporter, Grace Hood, used to cover energy and environment at CPR News. And she had returned to the U.S. from some time off in Paris with a remarkable story. The genesis for your years-long work on this. What had she witnessed in Paris? Yeah, so Grace has long been a good friend. And once Grace and her partner Vince uh, returned from Paris, we had met up and, and they told me the story, kind of offhand, how they had gone to see this manuscript that we have been describing, the 120 Days of Sodom. Written. The toilet paper manuscript. Yes, the toilet paper yeah. manuscript, because it had just, after years upon years, returned to France after it had been purchased for about $10 million, which at the time made it among the most valuable manuscripts in the world, and they're placed in the center of this operation called the Museum of Letters and Manuscripts in Paris. So these two, being far more literary than I am, uh, had decided to take time on their trip to go and visit the museum and see this scroll. And they showed up at the door, and the place clearly had been recently boarded up, and there were police officers carting materials out the front door. And Grace, being a diligent reporter, asked, what is going on? And apparently they said to her, well, it turns out that this whole operation was run by the Bernie Madoff of France. You basically were being told about a raid. You know, and I, I give full credit to them um, and their generosity for letting me kind of run with the story. But the combination of those two things, this incredible manuscript that I had never heard of, but had been on this incredible uh, journey across Europe, and then all of a sudden it landed in this massive alleged Ponzi scheme to me. It was like, oh, this is, this is rich. This is a place I could play with for a while. Which takes us to this other questionable real-life figure at the heart of the story, besides Saad, Gérard L'Héritier, who came up with an ingenious, ultimately illegal investment scheme. You call it a Ponzi scheme. He essentially sold shares in historic manuscripts through a company called Astrophil. How did this work? It's like, it's like a literary timeshare, Joel. Exactly. Now, we should be clear that we cannot call it illegal right now, and we cannot call it a Ponzi scheme, because up to this moment, Liarte has not actually gone to trial. So this is all still alleged. But this is how the operation worked. Exactly what you said. It is like a literary kind of timeshare, where uh, Liarte, who was this really uh, interesting fellow, he was this self-made son of a of a plumber who yearned to be part of the French aristocracy, you know, really not very like learned, but he realized that in the heart of Paris um, existed the world's greatest rare book and manuscript market. This is where these great manuscripts were kind of being passed back and forth for potential millions of dollars. And it was this tiny insulated market, like 100 or so uh, book dealers and a few thousand really rich people who go, maniacs and bibliophiles, as you said. And he said, oh, wait, 
there's more potential here. Yeah, this is a pie and we can divide this puppy exactly. up. Exactly. Uh -huh. So he started buying up manuscripts and then going to folks all over France and beyond, school teachers, firefighters, plumbers, and saying, hey, I'm going to sell you a share of this incredible manuscript written by, say, Albert Einstein. So you will all of a sudden own a piece of this incredible patrimony, as they say in France, um, and it'll be your now. Of course, we actually hold this manuscript at our operation, but it is yours, or this share is yours. And best of all, after five years, you will sell it back to us and we will give you 40% returns. So all of a sudden, all of the world's greatest literary treasures become investment vehicles. And they're tax advantaged in France because they're considered cultural artifacts. Oh yes, we, yes, we have to preserve the culture. So yeah, there's, there's no tax penalty. I mean, I want in, Joel. <laughs> I don't know if I would suggest that. But I think it's important that you point out this was not just the well-heeled that made these investments. These were people of humble means who saw this as a means to build wealth. And they were swindled. Allegedly swindled. Allegedly, Allegedly swindled. swindled. Uh, the uh he can be uh, a bit litigious, so we have to be careful with our terms. But yes, I mean, that was... That was the argument that Lierte and his colleagues made. They said, look, it's not fair that just kind of the rich aristocracy, rich and powerful, have access to these incredible pieces of history. What we need to do is, is open up access, open up ownership to everyone. He's seeing this as a democratizing force. Well, that's the way he framed it. it you know, it's unclear whether he actually saw it that way, but that's the way it was sold. Frequently, reading your book, The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, I had the thought that life truly is stranger than fiction. A few examples. The Marquis de Sade's skull is misplaced after his death. In life, he mounted theatrical productions in the asylum where he ended up. What role did incredulity play as you wrote this book, which seems to offer a strange nugget after strange nugget after strange nugget? It it reached a point where I think I almost became a bit immune to some of the crazy twists and turns. In the middle of the story, um, you know, one of the storylines looks at the rise and fall of this fellow, uh, Gerard Leretier, and the rise of his alleged Ponzi scheme and, and the world of rare French books and manuscripts. And yet I had to work in this one development because it really happened, but I didn't know, it was hard to fit in, where like literally, in the middle of this, Lierotier becomes incredibly rich, but not because of this manuscript company. In the middle of all this, he suddenly wins the largest jackpot in French history of the French lottery. And just like, literally, he just wins it. And there are all these researchers, all these critics said, oh, it must have like, like he must have rigged Euro millions, because it must have been part of his scheme, but if he had done so, he would be like a criminal mastermind level of James Bond, where he would have had to like literally rig this massive European lottery system. So he literally, it seems like he just randomly won the largest lottery registry. Although you posit that he might have bought the ticket off the winner. That is one theory that has been put out there, because, for example... He needed he... access to capital. Yes. And there are examples, for example, uh, Whitey Bulger, uh, the famous Massachusetts 
kind of mob boss ended up buying some lottery tickets to kind of launder his money. But that was like probably a you know, $10,000, $100,000 ticket. This was like 100 million euros. And for him to somehow find this lottery ticket that had the numbers of his kids' birthdays, because that's the numbers he chose, that makes it so incredible. Tell me about the role that the manuscript for 120 Days of Sodom plays in the alleged Ponzi scheme, because this is a massively valuable artifact. So Leritier launched this operation in the early 2000s, and it became bigger and bigger, ended up uh, having around 18,000 investors. It became, um, he ended up amassing one of the largest private collections of letters and manuscripts in the world. Which is how he was able to open this museum. Oh, yes. That was raided. Yes. And he had all sorts of really incredible kind of examples of literature. He had uh, the original uh, manifestos of the surrealist movement. He had, as I said, um, some of the original kind of letters of Albert Einstein that helped him develop his theory of relativity. He had fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He had Napoleon's love letters to Josephine. And so one key aspect of this business was for him to buy up these kind of real iconic manuscripts. So when he heard this rumor in 2013, 2014, that this long, last notorious manuscript of the most horrible writer who ever existed would potentially be purchased, he set his sights on that. This has to be one of the great acquisitions. And he spent about a year kind of negotiating internationally, and he brought it back on a private jet, and it was a huge, it was a big deal in France. It was a repatriation. Yeah, yeah. It was, like a, it was a celebration. And it happened, of course, to be the bicentennial of Saad's death. And this was a point where some French people were saying, oh, is Saad France's version of Shakespeare? Spoiler, no, he's not. <laughs> but, um, but it, and so he brings this back. This was, this was like the greatest acquisition yet for Gerard Lierte and his company. And then about two months after... He places this thing in the heart of his operation, his museum. That's when the police swoop in and shut everything down. I want to get to some bigger literary themes. Authors don't handwrite much anymore. What does that mean for historic preservation when it's the cloud and not parchment? This was one of the big picture ideas I was really intrigued by when I first started digging into the story. One of the main arguments of Lierretier was that the age of handwriting is coming to an end. And so he was saying, you know, we won't have the handwritten speeches of Barack Obama. We will not have uh, the handwritten drafts of Taylor Swift's songs 100 years from now because it's now all on the computer, Word documents, emails, text messages. And so the remnants of this massive age of handwriting will become more and more rare and more and more valuable, like, say, like a lost uh, Stradivarius violin. Because it's not being contributed to. It's not yeah. being refreshed. Now, I'm not sure if I fully buy his argument that these things are going to become as valuable as dinosaur fossils, but the idea of the end of handwriting was really interesting to me and how we are living through this existential shift and how we put down and share information where, you know, the average person, you know, receives hundreds of thousands of emails a year. But according to statistics, I, uh, the average American family hasn't received a handwritten letter in maybe once in the past year, right? We won't have 
um, the handwritten manuscripts of many of the kind of literary greats here at this, at this festival in Fresno Butte because they aren't writing one draft by hand and then writing a new draft. And we cannot see the evolution. It's all in a Word document or on Google Documents, and they just go revise things. So what happens? And Larry, T.A. sees this as a brilliant opportunity then to seize on a market that he knows is limited and increasingly valuable as a result. Yes. Yeah. The restoration of 120 Days of Sodom, the scroll, is fascinating to me. What did you learn about caring for masterworks? And could we start with the flood? Yes. The flood. That's the thing about these great stories. If you can find the right story, you get to learn about all sorts of incredibly fascinating things and go down fascinating rabbit holes. So there was a point in the 2000s where this manuscript, this notorious manuscript, was in Geneva in this kind of library of manuscripts in Geneva, and they decided it was time to do some work on this 40-foot-long brittle scroll to make sure it was preserved. And so, uh, thankfully, one of uh, the world's kind of leading preservationists was there, and she, the research I did, told me about this flood. Because up to fairly recently, people didn't really know how to preserve books very well, didn't know how to preserve manuscripts. And then in the mid-20th century, there was this catastrophe where uh, the river Arno in Italy flooded. It flooded much of Florence and it flooded uh, the kind of libraries and the museums where the written wealth of the Renaissance was stored. And at, at the end of it, they had thousands upon thousands of waterlogged kind of medieval manuscripts and I mean, as a writer, it almost sounds horrific to think about that, right? Like, yes. like covered in mud. My stomach is in yeah, nuts. right? And so they basically kind of called in, like, okay, we have to make, like, the Navy SEALs team of preservationists to see if we can stem the damage. And so they brought the world's, like, greatest experts in kind of paper and documents and what can we do? I have images of the A-team. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and they actually did some really incredible work and out of this kind of emergency kind of emerged the scientific field of how to actually preserve documents. And so modern day contemporary manuscript restoration, conservation is related to this flood. Those yes. techniques are still in use. Yeah. Yeah. Saad died thinking the manuscript was gone, didn't he? Yes. He wrote that... Every day I cry tears of blood because he believed that the manuscript was lost in the fall of the Bastille, which was the beginning of the French Revolution. You know, the French celebrate Bastille Day, like we celebrate Fourth of July, as like the beginning of the French Revolution, because Saad was in the Bastille until about seven days before when the prison warden just got sick of all his antics and had him, had him carted off naked to uh, an asylum outside of Paris and left behind his, uh, his cell that was full of all his writing. And the day that his wife was going to go collect all his manuscripts was when the revolutionaries stormed the Bastille and tore it down. So he quite understandably figured that all of his writing at the time, including his most horrific manuscript, had been destroyed as part of the launch of the French Revolution. It is a miracle or a curse, I'm not sure how to frame it, that this thing survived at all. That's what's so fascinating. It keeps having these moments throughout 
the centuries where it skirts oblivion, where it keeps these moments where it seems like, oh, this thing is going to be destroyed. So for example, apparently at some point in the sacking or destruction of the Bastille, this local citizen named Arnu found this scroll wedged in the walls of the Bastille. And it led it into this one of these incredible literary journeys where it ends up going all over Europe. It ends up being almost destroyed in the Nazi book burnings in Berlin in the 1930s. It was stolen and smuggled across Europe again. So it keeps having these moments where like, it probably should have been destroyed. And for whatever reason, by a quirk of fate or whatever you want to, however you want to call it, it survives, it gets passed on to this next incredible owner. Is it cursed? Do you believe in curses? This is interesting. So yes, the book is called The Curse of the Marquis de Sade. Exactly. Um, your, your book. Yes. And uh, it's probably a good title, right? Um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, I called it that because multiple people I spoke to, like some of these literary experts who worked on the scroll after it had been brought back to France, these people looked at me and they believed this. They said, the scroll is cursed because of of all of the upheaval that this thing had moved through through the centuries, uh, because it landed in the heart of this operation that soon after became labeled the largest Ponzi scheme in French history and destroyed the fortunes of thousands of people because of the backstory of this thing being written in the prison. But um, I have to be honest with you, Ryan, I'm not a very superstitious guy. And so for me, it's less about a real life curse. Oh, at least I hope it's not a curse because I wrote a book about this, so I'm in trouble <laughs> if there is a curse. For me, it's much more, it uh, goes back to your first question about obsession, right? So when people become so obsessed with acquiring something or containing something or seizing something, that's where we run into problems. That's, you know, when you put so much value in a thing, that's the real curse. It's like, you know, so we create this stuff. Banning books is in the news a lot right now. And I wonder how researching this book, 120 Days of Sodom, which has also kind of snaked in and out of book bans, how has it added to your understanding of censorship, of mores? That's a really good question. In that, some people would probably say, if you had to find an example of a piece of writing to illustrate the value of censorship yep. or the value of book bans, it would be this book because it is so horrible, right? Okay, so, so here is like the number one piece of evidence, okay? Proof that some books shouldn't be out there. But in my research and in my work, I really came to the opposite conclusion for two reasons. Number one, and let me just remind listeners that you are revolted by this book. Oh, it's horrible. Okay. I do not recommend anyone reading right. this Right. So it's not that you are about to explain what you're about to explain because you have some deep love of the plot. No, line. no, yeah. no. Please don't read the book. You could read my book, but don't read that <laughs> book. Um, Shared a majority of this, of this manuscript's history, it was banned everywhere. I mean, you know, this thing couldn't be published outright in 18th century France or 19th century Europe or even much of the 20th century anywhere in the world. It was very underground, some of exactly. the publications of it. And that's the thing. Even though there was this firm ban on it, it kept getting published. It, you know, it kept getting disseminated. So in other words, book bans don't work. 
Okay, it's not like it's going to stop works like this of still spreading. In some ways, it probably encourages the spread because everyone's like, oh, wait, this book is banned? Yeah. Oh, wait, there are accounts of, like, at the time, right after it was first published, people said that the works of Marquis de Sade kind of aged a young boy 20 years in a day after reading it. I mean, talk about good advertising, right? So people are going to want to read that. So one, book bans don't work. Like, if they couldn't stop this book from getting out there, you aren't going to stop any book. Mm -hmm. And number two, it goes back to what we were talking about, obsession. When you ban books, when you put these arbitrary limits and say, you cannot, these books cannot be read. They cannot be read in schools. They cannot be in libraries. You, you make all of them more attractive, whether it is pornographic drivel or incredibly important works of literature that kind of challenge social concepts in important ways. And as soon as you say all of these are banned, you're going to increase interest in all of them equally, as opposed to saying, hey, we're going to put this information out there, and you could read one in Trinity Days of Sodom, or you could read um, works of Toni Morrison, and you can choose which has value. You know, as soon as you remove the ability of readers to choose for themselves what has value, what has quality, um, you're you, placing your hand on the scale. Exactly. Hmm. So, that's, so that's why I think in some ways, if anything, I mean, as a journalist, I was never, I'm never supportive of book bans, but if anything, I became even more convinced that they are completely counterproductive after this work. And certainly not fulfilling their aim. Oh yes, yeah. completely not. I love words particular to a time in history, and you make reference to retine. This is a material that's not really around anymore, that's described as thick-napped, twilled woolen. But I wonder more broadly what sort of thought you give to vocabulary when you are writing a piece of historical nonfiction. You know, so that you don't introduce an anachronism and have, you know, have Marquis de Sade on his tablet or something. <laughs> so, yes. So my goal from this book and I know we've been talking about some pretty dark and heady stuff. I wanted it to be a fun and engaging read. I wanted it to read like a nonfiction version of The Da Vinci Code or a nonfiction version of watching an Indiana Jones movie. Like, like, go on this adventure with me. Be a fly on the wall as we watch these fascinating and sometimes horrible characters do these interesting things. Yeah. Um, so what I tried to do is kind of put the reader in these places. So I tried to put the reader in the cell of the Bastille when Saad was writing. Joel, I have been in that cell for a long time since reading this book. Awesome. You, you describe it beautifully. And the thing is, the cell is well appointed. Oh, yes. Like, we was... should all be imprisoned this way. Yes, I wish I had as much stuff in, right. in my house that Saad had in the cell because he was an aristocrat. So in the terminology, I tried to kind of keep it at that time period with two caveats. One, I wanted to make it clear. I didn't want to use any sort of fancy words, fancy vocabulary, just to show off that I could, because that's <laughs> alien as readers. And number two, I, uh, there were certain points that it was important to add context to what was going on. So for example, there is no question that what the Marquis de Sade did in real life was sexual assault, if not outright rape. And I, and I wanted to make that clear, because you know, at the time, wasn't just some kind of dalliances with these uh, young people. This was, this was a person of authority completely abusing 
uh, his power and subjecting the powerless to horrible, violent, and sexual things. So I wanted to add that sort of context. These were horrible things. Where is the scroll of 120 days of Sodom today? What is it worth? It's a very good question. If I wanted to be conniving, I should say it's a secret. You have to read the book to find out, but, <laughs> but I will be generous. So um, as part of the liquidation of this alleged Ponzi scheme, liquidation of all of these letters and manuscripts. That museum, right. And all of the other materials that were kind of kept away in the, in, uh, the storage rooms of this company, much of it was sold over a series of auctions. But there were certain documents that the state of France said, no, these are national treasures. These are iconic pieces of French history that have to be preserved alongside the Mona Lisa or uh, the Eiffel Tower. And they said, 120 days of Sodom, a piece of work that had been so horrific that they said no one can read it for hundreds of years. They said, no, this is now a national treasure. So it's in sort of the French hands, French state hands. Yes. So they purchased it from the liquidation company. And not that long ago, actually, they placed it in one of the facilities of the National Library of France, the Arsenal. And what's interesting is that this particular facility is right in central France, right down the street from the Place de la Bastille, which is where the Bastille was located. So this manuscript that had traveled all over Europe, back and forth, Switzerland, Germany, France, back, now rests literally within a stone's throw of where it was first written. Joel, it's cursed, dude. Why are you telling it's, me this? It, come on. I can't say that. I wrote a book on it. I'll, I'll be in trouble. <laughs> and what do we know it to be worth? Isn't it? It's insured by Lloyd's of London, right? Like of course. People's legs and hands and things. Yeah, Lloyd's is going to insure this stuff. Um, that's a good question. So, like I said, Lierite bought it for about, about 10 million euros. Then being a businessman, sold it to his investors for far more money. I think what, it was 14 or 20 million euros uh, or 10 million dollars and then sold it for like between 14 and 20 million dollars um and then the state did buy it for a good sum of money but around the four or five million dollar mark okay so once again the scroll struck again where these last owners of the scroll once again had their fortunes kind of dashed and ended up losing money were the investors made whole not even close. Not even close. The amount, um, it, it has been estimated that with interest, the investors, who are, there are around 18,000 investors, are owed 1 billion euros. Oh my goodness. And while there were 135,000 documents, it was clear the value of these had been massively exaggerated part of this operation. So they had this blockbuster series over six or seven years in the biggest uh, kind of book auction house in the center of Paris is called Drot, and it made international newsies. All of these incredible works of literature were put on sale, and there were some examples of these incredible sales, but at the end of the day, after all of these sales, the average price, going price of the stuff that was sold was between 10 and 15% of what it had been sold to these investors. So the average investor 
lost between 85 and 90% of their investments. And for some of these people, this was life savings. Are you a bibliomaniac? I would like to say no. However, I am the son of a librarian. And now that my mother is retired, her and my father helped run a used bookstore. And our house is full of books. And my kids like nothing better than compiling books. So I would love to say I'm just a bibliophile, which is a little more healthy. But by the very fact I wrote this book about this manuscript probably means I have a little bit of bibliomania deep down inside me. All right. The final part of our conversation with Denver author and investigative journalist Joel Warner after a break. We'll take questions from our audience at the Mountain Words Literary Festival in Crested Butte. A teacher asks, why elevate the Marquis de Sade at all? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Southwestern cities are packed with people, but farms and ranches use most of the Colorado River. You turn the water out of the ditch, it floods the field, and that's the way we've done it since, you know, 1888. One rancher has a plan to pay farmers to use less water, so there's more to go around. Listen to the CPR News podcast, Parched, wherever you get podcasts. Supported in part by Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It is smut, filth, obscenity, and it might be art. We're talking about the 120 Days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade, a manuscript that may or may not be cursed. Back now to a stage in Crested Butte, where I interviewed Denver author Joel Warner. His new book is The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, and he took some questions from our audience at the Mountain Words Literary Festival. Robin Blankenship in Crestone, Colorado. My question is, as a school teacher of young children and seeing something like Dr. Seuss get removed from my classroom, I'm horrified at book banning. But also, as a teacher, I am horrified at the thought of a book like this getting so much profile that it will create exactly that kind of response you mentioned of people just waiting to get their hands on the real thing after perhaps reading your book or just hearing about it being advertised again. Do you have any moral uh, like angst over it in any way? This is a really good question because like I said, I did have to read this book and study it pretty thoroughly as part of my research. And it is not something that I would wish upon even my worst enemy. It is a physically repulsive read. But I feel like as a journalist, as a lover and protector of words, I feel like I need to say, I, I need to let this work be out there. I really would feel recommending any sort of restrictions on even a work as excessive and horrible as this. This is the extreme, but I still feel like, you know, if you start putting limitations even on the most extreme, like where do you stop? And who knows, maybe, maybe that's the wrong uh, response, but I will say kind of two other things in my defense. Number one, the good news is that, and you can find translated versions of this thing online. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but you can. But if you do decide, okay, I'm going to go and 
kind of delve into this, you will read one or two pages and realize this thing isn't even fun to read. It's not well written. You know, even if kind of impressionable minds access this and found this after a page or two, they're like, they will say, this is absolutely boring. I'm going to go play my Nintendo game. Another example. So I have a, a brilliant uh, and precocious now 10 year old. And, uh, you know, I did much of this work in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, she was there as I was surrounded myself with all of this research books and horrible books about the Marquis de Sade, often with these very kind of lurid uh, covers. And she had no interest. She was like, this stuff is gross. I don't want to even know about it. I'm going to make fun of you for doing this weird stuff, daddy. Now I'm going to go do something else. So hopefully, thanks to work like you, as a teacher, you know, we have kind of given young people the skills to kind of evaluate this stuff for themselves and make choices like, you know what, I don't need to be doing, I don't need to be reading this right now. To follow up on the question, did you think I am elevating a pretty disgusting character? Was, was there a part of you that wanted to stop this project at any point as you delved into the darkness? Honestly, no. As a writer, as someone who loves stories, um, I probably became obsessed to some level, just like, this is a, such a fascinating story. I want to keep moving forward. I want to share this with people at the end. So I didn't have these moments of pause and maybe that was, maybe that was a fault of mine. But what I did try to do is try to moderate how I shared the actual story. A few of the reviews of my book uh, criticized one element of that I didn't talk much about the actual novel. I didn't actually give out the specifics from the novel of 120 Days of Sodom. I kind of more, I referred to it more kind of generally, and I talked about how people interacted with it. And I said, but that was the point of my book. I don't need to kind of bother writing much about this. I can focus on how it traveled all over Europe and how people became obsessed with it and inspired sexual scientists and surrealists and bibliomaniacs. That to me was much more interesting and also, and honestly, much kind of safer. Austin Johnston from Loveland. And I'm very curious about obviously how horrible this book is. And it's essentially a roll of toilet paper uh, tucked away in the wall of the Bastille. And I'm very interested in this character that stormed the Bastille, this revolutionary, found a roll of toilet paper with horrible microscopic writing on it and decided not to wipe with it, but, but somehow it ended up getting disseminated. Uh, what do we know about this character that first discovered it and plucked it out of the wall of the Bastille? It's a very good question. And for much of my research, by far the hardest part of the book was doing the research around the journey of this scroll. Um, but I was lucky that for much of this journey, there's a lot of written material. There's a lot on the sexual scientists in Berlin in the, in the 1900s. There's a lot in the Surrealist movement in Paris in the 1930s. There was a bunch about the Victorian erotica collectors in the 19th century who sought this thing out. There was a lot of information. The one point where there's almost no information is this very moment that you just referred to. According to an account in the 19th century, a man named Arnoux, A-R-N-O-U-X, found the scroll in the Bastille at some point during its sacking and demolition, 
and it was it actually the name was Arnoux de Saint Maximin. So the assumption is he was from the community of Saint Maximin in Provence, and that's all we know. But th but this is what we do know that even in the midst of the French Revolution, where like the world was being turned upside down, uh, where you know where they were overthrowing the, the monarchy and reimagining civilization, the wheels of capitalism were still moving because our new looked at this thing and said, oh, I can make some money. <laughs> because he ended up selling this to a rich provincial aristocrat. So we know that about our new. That, so, so hopefully he made it out okay. So my, my name is Tialim Go. I'm from Denver. Um, you talk about you know, some of the difficult parts of doing the research, but my question is what did you find most emotionally difficult in writing this book? Probably most, this is such a great question. Thank you for this. Probably the most emotionally difficult part was writing about the end of this incredible time period in Berlin, uh, where in the early 20th century, there was this really and truly this sexual revolution in Berlin, uh, where all of a sudden sexual diversity was being embraced and studied as a science and um, very nearly fully legalized. They came incredibly close to legalizing homosexuality, like within one vote. The police commissioner was going to drag balls as the guest of honor. And uh, some of the very first sexual reassignment surgeries were, were taking place in this, you know, it was this really rich moment and had incredible potential. And then, of course, it all came crashing down. And as the parent of an individual who identifies as queer, and to see the legacy and these real um, potential kind of early sexual revolutionaries, these real icons of sexual freedom, to not just be physically wiped away, but their story and their memories almost be completely wiped from the historical record. I mean, uh, today in Germany, um, during their pride marches, that they're named after, for example, like um, with the Stonewall riots here in the United States, as opposed to these people in their own country who literally invented uh, or came up with the term homosexual. That was hard. I mean, and I'm glad I was able to share this in my writing, because I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of my book. But, but to have to kind of grapple with what could have been and what we lost kind of decades of was really quite emotional. That we lost to Nazism. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the Nazis took so much from us, you know, and this is one of the kind of many, many victims of that time. Denver author Joel Warner, no relation, he has written The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, a notorious scoundrel, a mythical manuscript, and the biggest scandal in literary history. We spoke at the Mountain Words Literary Festival in Crested Butte. Very special thanks to audio engineers Pedro Lumbrano and Tyler Bender for following me there. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.